Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, July 6th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. Joining me today, it's my financial partner in crime, certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. It's a rainy day in South Carolina, but it was a beautiful weekend. Hopefully, you had a nice 4th of July up there. Yeah, yeah. It was a nice, it was, it was, uh, it was hot, you know, but I mean, everybody seemed like they really enjoyed themselves. My wife and kids got to go, you know, hang out at the pool in the, in the neighborhood here for a while. I mean, I got some, you know, work done around the yard and stuff like that. Uh, did a little barbecuing. That was fun. You, it sounded like you had a little, uh, you had one of your specialties going this weekend, huh? Yeah, I'm a I'm a barbecue guy. I, I made a, a beef brisket. It's been a while since I've had enough people over to my house because I don't know if you've seen a beef brisket. They're a, a you know a it's big a, cut of meat. It's a lot so of I, meat. <laughs> it's been a while since I've had enough people over to my house to justify making one. So it was that was nice. It's always a big hit. Yeah, yeah. I you know I was thinking about it over the weekend. It, I think that my favorite holiday food wise is still Thanksgiving. But I, the Fourth of July weekend, the Fourth of July holiday is, is usually a close second. I mean, we did a lot of good grilling, had a lot of good food. Uh, I, I do enjoy, I enjoy that summer cookout. Yeah, for sure. It was, it's, it's always a good time when you can bust out the grill. And I, I, I don't know about you, I like, I like cooking for a lot of people. Yeah, well, yeah, I do too. I, I, I'm kind of the cook of the family, and I mean, it's just one of those things. I have the the ability to do it and I enjoy it. So it's one of those things I can, I can do to contribute to the household. But yeah, I, I do like being able to cook for folks. So, uh, yeah. Uh, well, on today's financial show, we're going to take a look at Warren Buffett's latest firing of the elephant gun. Could be a potential controversial investment here that Berkshire Hathaway is making for a lot of money. Um, a big bank's dividend is getting a little bit smaller, it seems. As always, we have a couple of stocks for you to keep your eye on this week. But first off, Today, Matt, you know, this was something we read a few days back, and it's not something we haven't really, it's not the first time we've seen this type of sentiment, uh, but it does seem like something that's gaining some traction. There's a bipartisan Senate bill that's been introduced that would actually punish retailers for refusing cash payments. Now, we talk about the war on cash here all the time. I mean, when you, you look at some of these companies that that are really leading that way from the big ones like MasterCard and Visa, Smaller companies that are getting a lot bigger, PayPal, Square. I mean, Square's been on fire here the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, we talk a lot about how, in particular the pandemic, um, people have wanted to handle cash less and less. And there's science behind the fact that cash is pretty filthy. I mean, it it, it does transmit germs, and so uh, you know, it's it's understandable that people may not want to handle cash as much. Um, but this, the Payment Choice Act, which is something that's getting getting some traction here in the Senate. Essentially, you know, they're saying that that's fine. The war on cash is great. Mobile payments, contactless, that's all fine. But you can't refuse using cash. You can't tell consumers that they can't use cash. And and I'd I'd like to know your stance on this because I think I know it. But but what do you think about? I mean, it's kind of weird. This legislation has to exist. But by the same token, if if I'm a merchant, I don't think I'd want to refuse any form of payment. I want I want to give you know my customers any which way to pay. To ultimately make the sale, so, right. so is this legislation that really needs to exist? Well, there's 
three points. One, like you said, it's just bad business to refuse cash. Um, you know, you don't want to turn away customers that have you know, forms of legal currency. Uh, that's yeah. just a generally bad idea. Uh, number two, the, the the rules, the the purpose of the bill is to protect the people who don't have bank accounts, and or they call them the unbanked and the underbanked segment of the population. It's about six percent right. of the U.S. population, and it skews toward minorities. Um, you know, a- African American and Hispanics are a disproportionately large amount of that population. So it's somewhat of a dis- it's considered somewhat of a discriminatory act to refuse cash altogether. That's number two. And from a legal standpoint, it's written right on the money. This note is legal tender. Um, it's it's really hard to make the argument toward refusing cash. Um, that's It's the one form of payment that is specifically, you know, it's written on there. This is legal money in, in the United States of America. So I, I'm not surprised it has bipartisan support. Um, cash should have a place in our society. Um, in a perfect world, everybody would have access to a bank account. Don't get me wrong, but cash should have some 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 role in our in our financial system, at least for the time being, until we can figure out how to get digital payments reliably into everybody's hands. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point there in regard to the unbanked and the underbanked, and I think the numbers that that apply there. So if you talk about like actual unbanked, I mean, the FDIC had a survey out back in two thousand and seventeen or eighteen, where they they saw approximately six and a half percent of the, of Americans did not have a bank account at all. And then if you if you add underbanked to that equation, which is you know folks that need to resort to uh, perhaps non-traditional methods to, to basically manage their financial lives, whether it's payday loans or something like that. The underbanked, it's essentially 25% of the population. So there is there's a lot of people out there that you know don't have that what me what we may see is like a common sort of access to a bank account. A lot of people don't have that. And so you see the success of companies like Square with their Cash App or PayPal with PayPal and Venmo and, and Zoom and whatnot. I mean, it's sort of changing maybe that definition of what banking is in the 21st century. Um, and I, I tend to agree with you. I feel like cash has a role in the economy. I'll give you an example. I was over um, at Burke Nursery here over the weekend, just a local nursery, and uh, you know, I was getting a bunch of mulch for a yard. And so it's really great. You go in there, you just tell them what you want, and then you pull your car around, and they have a couple of guys come out and load it in the back of the car for you. And so, I, you know, anytime I do that, I want to be able to tip those guys. I mean, they're doing they're doing hard work, and it's out there. It's hot, and you will throw a couple of bucks their way. The only way I can do that is with cash. And so, you know, until we get to a point where maybe you could disrupt that tip that tipping mentality, um, in at least certain cases. I mean, any which way you cut it, it it really does feel like cash is always going to have a place. And, and and like you said, the language on the on the money says it plain as day. Like <laughs> you have to accept it. Right, like at some point, cash may be you know one or two percent of our transaction volume. I think right now it's something around a third. A third of U of transactions in America take place in cash, and yeah. it's generally lower dollar purchases. Um, and I mean, I I usually carry some cash because you know if I'm buying a you know something for four dollars or something something to that effect, I really don't want to use my credit card. But yeah. it it's you know there's definitely a, a place for cash, and it may it. The cash use is just going to dwindle uh, for the foreseeable future, but I don't see it going away anytime in the next few decades. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree. Interesting legislation, nonetheless. The Payment Choice Act. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, hey, Matt, did you hear that? 
Did you hear that? That was the sound. That was the sound of Warren Buffett's elephant, fun, elephant <laughs> gun going off. That was Warren Buffett's elephant gun, man. Did you hear? Do you see this? Berkshire Hathaway buying Dominion what, Energy. Was it really the elephant gas gun? Assets. Well, I mean, I guess it, it, what, it was a $4 billion transaction. The assumption of debt values the whole deal at $10 billion. I mean, that's, that's, I, you know, I don't have I don't have ten billion dollars lying around on my couch. I mean, it, it's, it seems like kind of a big deal, at least at least you know in relation to what he's he's not been doing lately. I mean, it it, it is it is a big deal. I mean, the, it does strike me. I was a bit surprised. I kind of I don't want to say ho hum, but this really does seem like a very Buffett style investment. You know, investing in energy and natural gas. Um, Talk to us a little bit about this. You, you follow Berkshire Hathaway. You write a lot about him, and and you know this company very well. Explain this deal to to me and to our listeners. Yeah, well, when when I first saw the news about this yesterday, my first reaction was, eh, I, I I'm not that excited <laughs> about it, and I'll tell you why. Um, one, you're right. Four billion dollars is a lot of money for pretty much every company, but Berkshire Hathaway. Um. Berkshire Hathaway ended the first quarter with $137 billion on its balance sheet. And that was before Buffett unloaded all the airline stocks and and, and yeah. raised cash that way. So $4 billion is kind of a drop in the bucket. And people were hoping he would take advantage of some sort of you know distressed situation. When you think back to the Great Recession era, um, you know, coming out of the Great Recession, Buffett invested in Goldman Sachs, um, Bank of America. GE too, advantage. right? Didn't he invest in GE at that time? GE, but we don't talk about that. that, that <laughs> <laughs> I think he got out. He got out while the while the getting was still good. Okay, um, but you know he he got out of General Electric a long ago. So it did what he he made money off of it. Um, that's all you can ask. So, but but point being that during the the crisis era, he invested in distressed companies. He. He did a very he did Buffett moves he and and not only that but the Bank of America and Goldman Sachs deals those were investments that you and I couldn't have made. Yeah. Um, if you remember the Bank of America deal, for example, he bought a a bunch of warrants that gave him or he bought preferred stock, but it gave him the option of buying a bunch of common shares anytime within the next decade or so for I think seven dollars a share. Um, yeah. Which so he he quadrupled his money on that investment. That was a deal. Those securities didn't exist. They created them for Warren Buffett. Um, yeah. Goldman Sachs. It was a similar deal too. Um, so people were hoping something similar like this. Maybe he would you know acquire a hotel chain that was going going poorly, or acquire you know some company that wasn't doing well. Um, Dominion's doing fine. They're they're my yeah. power company. I know they're they're doing just fine. Yeah. Uh, Dominion didn't need to sell its natural gas resources. It, if anything, its shareholders are kind of upset because now they got a dividend cut out of the deal. <laughs> um, you know, Dominion's going to have less income-producing resources to pay dividends with. That's a very good point. Uh, they've they've already declared a dividend cut, so um, it's it does help Buffett. I mean, utilities are a very Buffett business. They're pretty much guaranteed money that. The only thing I really like about this deal is it adds to the margin of safety in Berkshire's cash flows because utilities are money that are going to come in no matter what. People are always going to pay their electric bill. People are always going to pay their natural gas bill in this case. So this increases Buffett's – I think Berkshire has an 18% share of the natural gas pipeline business in in the U.S. now after this deal. 
which makes him Dang. a pretty major player. Yeah. Um, it's a it, it's a pretty small deal Berkshire-wise. It's It helps their utility business. It adds consistent cash flow is, in my opinion, the, the number one perk of this deal. But it's not what a lot of his shareholders were hoping for. It's not likely to get a lot of people excited. Um, people would be excited if Berkshire were to buy an airline that were that was about to go bankrupt and got it for <laughs> and got it for pennies on the dollar or something like that, because um, that would be a, a a crisis era Buffett investment that that you would think of. When you think back to financial crisis, you don't think what utilities was Buffett looking at. You're thinking what banks did he invest in? What what distressed companies did he buy? So I, I don't hate the investment. I'm the money will, that four billion dollars will definitely be generating more revenue and more cash flow for shareholders than it would have sitting in treasury securities. So in that way, it's it's definitely a good good sign. But I still think Buffett's looking for that one COVID era deal that's really gonna you know live on through history, and this yeah. isn't it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's a good point you make there in, in that whether it is energy slash utilities or insurance, I mean, he really does have a penchant for those those consistent cash flow businesses, right? And the businesses that you know, those payments are always coming in. I mean, they, they actually, those types of businesses can afford to take on a little bit of a different capital structure. They, they are able to handle more debt. Because they're so capital intensive, but but also because they're so reliable, right? I mean, you know, your power bills are going to get paid for, insurance bills are going to get paid for. Um, but yeah, yeah, it does strike me as well. Yeah, I guess it's okay. I mean, I'm not a Berkshire shareholder anymore, so I mean, I don't really care about it from from that perspective. But but yeah, it seems like we're waiting for some big sexy acquisition, and this just ain't it. Yeah, I, I it it could be coming, it could not be coming, but. What I do like is that this, like I said, it's safe cash flow. It's going to generate more cash flow. So Berkshire's cash cash stockpile will grow even faster now. Um, and it, it gives, the way I look at it for every safe acquisition or investment Buffett makes like this, it gives them more wiggle room to make more stock purchases, more, you know, more, more less boring investments, if you will. Well, yeah. So, Take a position in like a Pagsegura or or a Stoneco, you know. I mean, those are certainly smaller, riskier ideas. Right. That, so the so the more utilities, insurance companies, railroads, things like this you own, the easier it is to justify taking swings in that. Yeah. So I, I, I I'm hoping this isn't the last of his 2020 investments. I remember I remember I wrote the article at the beginning of the year, my five bold predictions. Oh yeah. The only one that hasn't come true yet is Buffett will make a big acquisition. And I'm not declaring it a victory today. (laughs) You're not. I could, I could take the easy victory lap, but I'm not going to, because I don't think this is a big, you know, Buffett defining acquisition. I I I like that, man. Hold, hold, hold to your standard. I can appreciate (laughs) that. Nothing wrong with that, Matt. Well, so in talking about Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, in related news, now Wells Fargo, which is clearly a very large uh, Berkshire holding. I mean, he's you know they've owned shares in Wells Fargo for for a long, long time. Um, 
you know, we talked recently about the stress tests and and these sort of worst case scenarios where the Fed has has looked to these banks to say, listen, in in the case of of just the worst case scenario, we could see some balance sheets and some capital capital positions here getting strained. Um, and so there were some stipulations laid down there in regard to share purchases in regard to dividends. But Wells Fargo, it looks like, is actually going to be cutting its dividend. Now, I don't think. That's something that's going to happen maybe today, from what I could gather. The, the company reports earnings next week on July 14th, and that'll be for their second quarter. But but for, it does sound like for this third quarter, they're actually going to be, at, at the very least, cutting their dividend. I don't think they would eliminate it. Do you? No. So, here's what you need. Here's why they're going to cut their dividend. They've already announced they're going to have some sort of reduced payout. They haven't announced what it's going to be yet. Um, so, Wells Fargo, as you know, is mostly a commercial bank, meaning yeah. that they don't have a giant investment banking operation. They may they they make most of their money by taking in deposits and loaning out money. Um, because of that, they have a lot of exposure to potential losses if things go badly with this recession. Right. So during the first quarter, they built up their reserves by three point one billion dollars, which reduced their earnings per share from I think seventy three cents a share to one cent per share. Whew, and that was. They didn't lose the money. They set this money aside in case the worst happens. So the Fed's recent action limits bank dividends to a formula based on their last four quarters of earnings. So in the first quarter, Wells Fargo earned a penny a share. That's obviously not helping its dividend. In the third and fourth quarter of last year, I have the numbers right in front of me, Wells Fargo paid out or I'm sorry, Wells Fargo earned 92 cents and 60 cents in the third and fourth quarters of last year. So those are the three quarters we know so far. So it already the bank also announced that it's going to be setting aside even more money in its loss reserves than it did during the first quarter, which pretty much means that it's going to have negative earnings in the second quarter when you factor that in. So doing the math, they had about $1.50 a share in profit in the third and fourth quarter of last year, essentially nothing in the first quarter of this year. So depending on what the profit they report in the second quarter of this year next week, you're gonna, they're going to be able to make a determination for their dividend going forward. Gotcha. It's not going to be enough to support the payout. No. That, that they well, have. and the stock is the stock has had a really tough year thus far. I mean, it, it, I think essentially year-to-date has been cut in half already. Oh, Wells Fargo's had a very tough three years. Remember, yeah. Wells Fargo has been underperforming since before the pandemic was going on. It wasn't that long ago. I think in early 2016, Wells Fargo was considered the top-notch bank stock in America. Yeah. Um, all the, the scandals came out. So Wells Fargo is down something like 70% over the past few years. at a time, And the overall bank sector's up. So yeah. they're by far the worst-performing bank stock out of the big four, including this year. So Wells Fargo has been a real underperformer. Their current dividend translated to something like an 8% yield. So even if they're forced to cut their dividend in half, which I think is probably a pretty likely scenario, um, you're still looking at a 4% yielding bank stock. Wells Fargo's asset quality is pretty high. It's pretty high quality. It's just that they have so much commercial banking exposure that in a worst case scenario, they are more prone to disaster. Now, not that we think this is going to happen. The stress tests are designed to te- to examine a scenario that's not really likely to happen. So, 
shareholders shouldn't panic. Um, if anything, this could be a potentially a buying opportunity on weakness. Um, I'm hesitant to call any buying opportunity in Wells Fargo <laughs> just because of how it's gone the past few years. But I will say the stock's gotten my attention in the past couple months. I haven't pulled the trigger on it. But I'm, I'm not worried about it because of this dividend action. This is not a dividend cut in response to actual losses yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you, you, you make a good point there. And that, I mean, this is all this is all based on some pretty simple math out there. I mean, obviously, Wells Fargo's had, had some issues. But the fact that, you know, these banks are being held to these stress test standards. I mean, this the whole point of, of this was to avoid... Um, you know, the, 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 the travesty and the carnage of what happened 10, 11 years ago to avoid that happening again. Um, and, and if they're running a tight ship, if things are going well, well, I mean, that dividend will come back. I mean, they maintain such a large presence in the mortgage market alone. I mean, this isn't a bank that can just go away. So, I mean, you know, we often see, I mean, we talk about in times when co- companies cut dividends, oftentimes it may sound like bad news. It sounds like a bad headline. But really, if you're, if you're forward thinking, if you have a bit of a longer timeline, and oftentimes, I mean, that really actually is very good news because that means the company is, you know, taking a look at its at its financial situation, and trying to make sure they have, you know, all of their I's dotted and T's crossed. Yeah, uh, dividend cuts are not. It depends on the circumstances. There, a proactive dividend cut can be a good thing. We're seeing a lot of that in the real estate sector this year. Um, a lot of the real estate companies I follow are cutting dividends, especially like hotel real estate. Um, a lot of them are cutting dividends to preserve liquidity in anticipation of a worst case scenario or something yep. to that effect. So something like that can be a net positive for shareholders long term, or at least not a negative. You know, preser- preserving liquidity is always a a, po- a good thing. Yeah. Um, yep. Or you know, anticipation of a worst case scenario, like the the Wells Fargo. It's it's a proactive dividend cut. It's not in response to the, an inability to pay. It's in response to what could happen down the road. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. What you don't want to see is a company forced to cut its dividend because it doesn't have any money. Yeah. And and th- those are the situations where it's it could be a you know a runaway red flag situation. Yeah. And that's where you know you look at you look at a company's financials, look at that income statement, and you can see that payout ratio. It's it's a it's clear as day metric, and the higher it is, the, the more you have to kind of wonder: is you know, can this company afford this type of dividend policy? It's one thing if it's a one-off, but if it's a, a sustained track record of of you know a high you know a high dividend payout a payout ratio, then I mean you do have to you have to take that into consideration. No question about it. Uh, well, Matt, before we take off this week, let's give our listeners one to watch for the coming week. What is your one to watch this week? I'm going to bring back one of my old favorites, and I'm going to brag on it for just a minute. Go for um, it. Green Dot, ticker symbol GDOT. Um, I talked about Green Dot a long time ago. It, the stock got clobbered. Um, they ended up making up making a major change. Uh, fe- co- our original founder, Steve Street, retired. We had him on the show a while ago, if you remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he retired. They brought in a new CEO, Dan Henry, who's kind of a game-changing CEO for them. Um, he's really prioritizing growth. He wants them to leverage their bank charter. He kind of really views their bank charter as the big differentiator between them and other prepaid card companies. So, what? And this whole Wirecard scandal, if you've been following that, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you have been. You're the war on cash guy. What a mess. Uh, so, yeah, Wirecard, if you're, if you're not familiar, they essentially $2 billion of cash evaporated from their balance sheet. Um, 
so the the Wirecard scandal could actually really play out to Green Dot's advantage, um, especially being the the payments company with a bank charter. Because um, as you know, we follow companies like how long Square been trying to get a bank charter for. Um, so having a bank charter in hand is a big differentiator right now um, in in a in a, a space that's getting crowded. Um, Green Dot's already doubled off of its lows, which I'm happy to say for all the people who kept yelling at me about constantly talking about them. It's finally starting yeah. to, to pan out a little bit. Um, but I think there could be a lot more from here. Um, remember, they also have the banking as a service business with customers like Apple, Uber, Intuit. Um, and I think there's a lot more room on that side of the business too. Um, they're a really unique company. Absolutely. And what's the ticker on that? G-D-O-T. G-D-O-T. All right. Well, I am going to spend the week trying to learn a little bit more about a recent IPO. Uh, a lot of you probably have heard of this one already. Lemonade, ticker is L-M-N-D. Um, interesting insurance play here. And going through their S1, just to start getting a little bit more familiar with the business, their mission statement, their mission is to harness technology and social impact to be the world's most loved insurance company. And that alone kind of caught me because I think a lot of people these days, you kind of think of insurance as like, nobody I think really loves their insurance company. I think most people just wish they didn't have to necessarily pay the bill or just hope that when they do have to file a claim that their insurance company isn't going to screw them. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe Lemonade sees a big opportunity there to really kind of changing the narrative and the perception here is no question it is it is geared towards a younger consumer uh, they are working on digitizing insurance from end to end but it's it's also really interesting that the, their model like a typical a typical insurance company you know they'll take those premiums in and, and then they'll at some point or another a, a catastrophe will happen and they'll have to pay out and their profitability depends on that whether it's a you know a pandemic or weather related whatever it may be um, it, it looks like Lemonade actually just they they retain a fixed fee about twenty five percent of their premiums, and then ultimately pass off the insurance aspect of the business to third party insure. Basically, they they offload that that business to reinsurers. So they have, I guess, what they think they have at least is a little bit more consistency in the profitability, um, in in you know utilizing technology really to attract uh, perhaps a younger demographic, but. Um, you know, it, it, new IPO. It's, it's. I mean, insurance is right up our alley here. I think it'd be a fun business to learn about. And maybe what we can do is we could try to, uh, you know, take a week uh, in, in the coming in the coming weeks here and do a deep dive on on the company for one of the shows here. Um, but but that's that's going to be the company I'm taking a look at this week. So uh, listen, Matt. Hey, you know, I'm glad you guys had a safe fourth. Sounds like everybody's doing well down there. Appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Of course, always good to be here. Alrighty, that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show, it's produced by Tim Sparks. Thanks for making it happen, Tim. Appreciate you. For Matt Frankel and Jason Moser, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 